The most important human action is worship. The challenge, of course, is that it becomes a ritual, a rote. In the good habit of worship, we find ourselves losing sight of its unique preciousness. And so we come thinking, okay, it's just another Sunday gathering. What do we do about that? How can we make our worship something that is uniquely precious every time we gather? Now, family relationships are supposed to be the most intimate and close ones in this world. This passage that we're going to look at, I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4. This passage is going to show us our sinfulness in all its horror in these two dimensions. Even when we are trying to worship, we will sin. (laughs) You know, there's ways in which we sin and we're not even aware that we're sinning. And worship is one of those. This passage is going to show our sinfulness in all its horror, even ripping apart the bonds of family love as well. So we'll look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. We'll actually make our way through the end of the chapter and into chapter 5 in the sermon, but we'll just read the first 16 for now. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what? Have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me Today, away from the ground and from your face, I shall be hidden, I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Please have a seat. There are ways we sin and do not know it. And worship, when we're at worship, is one of the most important of those places. This morning, we're going to look at various things that are part of or not part of the curse that Adam's sin brought upon the human race. You know, in chapter 3, Adam sinned, and as a result, 
death passed to all of us, all of us have sinned, there's a curse of Adam hanging on us all, and now here in chapter 4, we're going to see some ways in which that curse fingers out into things. But we need to be aware that there's some things that are part of the curse and other things that are not part of the curse. There are some things that are not part of the curse that are affected by the curse. Let's get into it. Verses 1 through 4. Differences are not part of the curse. Cain and Abel grow up, and like most people in most families, brothers are not like each other. They're they're different. Sometimes those of you who have children may say, how can two people come from the same gene pool? They're different. God makes us different. We sometimes enjoy those differences. We sometimes don't. Sometimes we think that they're part of the curse when they're not. Eve's cry in verse 1 is one that every woman uh, who's a mother will understand. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Think about being the first woman ever who had to experience childbirth. And you will say, oh yeah, she needed the help of the Lord, right? But there's this sense of rivalry and envy that can come up in the fact of differences. We see it when someone is a little bit different and you see children making fun of a person who's different. We see it in the issues of race that confront our world. We see it in rivalry and envy, someone who is not part of our team. Now, that's ways in which the curse can impact differences, but differences themselves are not part of the curse. How we react to them often are. Now, in verses 3 and 4, the differences between Cain and Abel actually extend to how they worship God. And by the way, differences in how we worship are mostly okay, but there is a critical issue of the heart that must be considered. Look at verse 3, Cain brought to the Lord, and it says, an offering. This word in Hebrew is mincha. It means gift. By the way, that word is used in the Bible of both animal and grain offerings. So, and in fact, it's used mostly of grain offerings. So, when he brings an offering, don't think that it's got to be an animal offering. The same word is used for both animal sacrifice and grain offerings uh, in Leviticus 2. Anyone brings a grain offering as a mincha to the Lord, his mincha shall be of fine flour. He'll pour oil on it, put frankincense on it, bring it to Aaron's sons the priest, and on and on go the instructions. In fact, uh, in Deuteronomy 26, we read that when the people of Israel come into the land, the promised land, uh, It says, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You'll put it in a basket. Go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I've come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us and the priest shall take it, the basket, from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. So, the problem for Cain is not that he brought a minka of the fruit of the ground, a grain offering. That's not his problem. Some, some, if, if you were taught in Sunday school as a kid, okay, there were two brothers One had an offering that was of grain, and that's bad, and the other had an offering that was an animal, and that's good, and uh, you got taught wrong, okay? You, You got taught wrong. The problem here is Cain's sin in worship of giving less than his best to God. Worship is no trifling matter. 
How we worship is no trifling matter. How we approach God is no trifling matter. Cain gave his offering as an obligation. He did it with carelessness and thoughtlessness. Look at the words. It says, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Literally, some of the fruit of the ground. And notice how quickly Cain becomes angry. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. That his act of worship was evil. His brother's were righteous. Hebrews 11.4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That reveals a bit of the differences between the two offerings. Cain, some of the fruit of the ground, just kind of a careless, thoughtless, wrote, well, here I am, it's another Sunday, kind of offering. But notice Abel, it says in verse 5, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. For Abel, worship was an act of freedom, of choice, of generosity. For Cain, it was an obligation. It was careless. It was a ritual. It is not about animal versus grain sacrifice. It is about a matter of the heart. We waste amazing energy and engage in meaningless debate as believers over aspects of worship that matter hardly at all. And we give little heed to those aspects of worship that were God less kind than He is would lead to Him killing us. We debate over style of worship, over form, over music, over dress, over posture, over responsiveness, how responsive we are in a worship service. We debate over all those things Meaningless. God wants our whole being as an offering to Him. Listen to what God, through the prophet Amos, spoke to the people of Israel in Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. By feasts, He's not talking about they're getting together for fun times like a family reunion, the feast were the three feasts of the Jewish calendar. I, they're acts of worship. I, I hate it. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. Notice, both the meat offering and the grain offering, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will look, not look upon them. Take away from me, God says, the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Why? Because the people in Amos' day were living lives of utter hypocrisy, going through the motions of worship, saying, well, it's another day to worship, let's do it, with carelessness and no regard. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing perfect will. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul goes on to describe this in terms of the worship of the church. 
He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so that's the the measure of of our worship. But then he goes on to add this in verse 17 of Colossians 3, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him that there is an aspect of the heart that goes beyond the the details, the order. Cain and Abel are offering their gifts. One has a grain offering, one has has an animal sacrifice, but whether it's a grain or an animal sacrifice does not matter. What matters is that one says, well, here's some of it, And the other one says, here's the firstborn and the fat portions of the firstborn. Differences are not part of the curse. But when we worship in a rote, careless, unconcerned, bored kind of way, we are shouting defiance at a good and gracious God. Anger at God is part of the curse. Verses 5 through 7, Cain is angry. It says very angry. His face fell. So his his posture and the, the demeanor on his face is very clearly one of dis honor, disrespect, uh, anger at God. And the, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? You know, selfish anger is always sinful. Uh, righteous anger is always, it, it seems, in defense of another. Anger is a strong gateway to more intense sin. And by anger, we're not just talking about losing one's temper but this is the idea of resentment, right? Sin waits, as it were, for an opportunity. And one only has to slip once. Mastering sin requires saying no to it every time. God asks Cain this why question twice in verse 6 because he wants Cain to understand the nature of true worship. Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? In verse 7, this word accepted means lift it up. If you do well, if you change your heart toward me, will you not be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to master you. It's contrary to you. You must rule over it. If, if Cain will just change his heart toward God, toward what acceptable worship means, not only will his sacrifice be lifted up, but so will he. Now, this reveals something that's kind of pretty deep inside the text here. On the one hand, uh, we're called upon to make right decisions, aren't we? We're called upon to fight against sin, crouching at the door, and to win every time. Cain is being given an opportunity to win here. But... In the grand sense, in the big picture sense, the entrance of sin through Adam has created a situation that's impossible for us because we can't win every time. And the question that should be asked as we are dealing with this text is, what's going to be our way out? And that's going to be a storyline in the Bible all the way through the rest of Scripture. What is our way out when we can't obey perfectly every time? What is our way out from under our doing and being what God cannot accept? And the answer is going to be that there's going to be a captain who will come, a king. And that king, he's going to die to pay for our sin and he's going to take all of our sin on himself, all of it. 
and he's going to take all of his righteousness and he's going to clothe us in his righteousness. Deceit and violence are part of the curse. Verses 8 and 9, Cain kills his brother. The violence is senseless and undeserved. He speaks to his brother Abel. You'll notice if you have an English Standard Version that there's a number of um, Old Testament manuscripts that add the phrase, Cain spoke to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. Uh, That's certainly implied in the text, the idea of going out to the field. When they were in the field, uh, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, here's something that's interesting. Cain, it says, spoke to his brother Cain has a God problem, but he sees his God problem instead as a brother problem. (laughs) He invites him to the field, to his home turf, so to speak, and Cain kills his brother. You know, there's a lot of times where uh, people think they have they, where people have a God problem, but they think they've got some other kind of problem. You know, Cain has a God problem, but he thinks he's got a brother problem. Some of you think that you have a marriage problem, when in fact you have a God problem. Some have a bo- think they have a boss problem when they have a God problem. They think they have a family problem, or a child problem, or a grandchild problem, when they have a God problem problem. Be careful of that. Cain kills his brother. How does he know what death means? Perhaps the only thing he'd ever seen before of something die was the sacrifice of the animal that Abel had killed. It reveals to Cain what death meant, and now he says, oh, I will take death to my brother, and he kills him. He thinks he's dealt with the problem. He thought he had a brother problem, but it does not take away Cain's God problem, does it? In fact, it makes it worse. God, just as he did Cain's parents, pursues a relationship with Cain with a penetrating question. Look at verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Note that God uses both Abel's name and the relationship that Cain has with Abel in the question. Where is Abel, your brother? And Cain now lies directly. I do not know, he says. It's a lie. Now, his parents, when they sinned, had shifted blame, but they had not lied directly. Now sin is growing. It's become more direct and more encompassing. We're starting to see compound interest on sin in his sin. Do you see that Cain now attacks God? I mean, he says in his question, am I my brother's keeper? Actually, what he's saying is, how dare you question me? This is the first time, but it won't be the last, that the ones investigating sin will be attacked for having the audacity to investigate it, as though there's something wrong with God for investigating it. Deceit is always destined for defeat, but that doesn't keep us from being deceitful, does it? Cain lies thinking that he's going to get away with it. He doesn't. He should know that, but it doesn't keep him from lying. And God asks a fourth question. Do you see God's questions? Verse 6 is the first one. Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Second question, if, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Third question, where is Abel your brother? Verse 9. Fourth question, verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is an idea that's not widely understood in the Western civilization. It's there. I won't take time to tease out how 
blood guilt is actually in Western civilization. It seems foreign to us, but it's there if I took the time to explain it to you. The idea of shedding innocent blood and the blood guilt resting upon a man or a culture because of the shedding of innocent blood. In Deuteronomy 19, we have capital punishment for those who actually murder other people. Why? Because you don't want the blood guilt to rest on any but the person who committed the crime. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, you have this description of what you should do when there's an unsolved murder. You're to take the blood of a heifer and to wash your hands with it. And in that way, the culture is absolved from the unsolved murder. In fact, this is uh, what's behind Pilate washing of his hands at Jesus' trial, because in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees uh, actually uh, put down this law. There was, a, in those days, the number of unsolved murders was increasing so rapidly that um, it was costing too much in the blood of heifers. So the Pharisees said, well, what we're going to declare is that water is sufficient to wash our hands to be absolved of this unsolved murder. So when Pilate, at Jesus' trial, washes his hands of the matter, saying, I won't have any part in the shedding of the blood of this innocent man, the Jewish leadership responds with this statement. Pilate's saying, a, a murder's taken place here. I, I don't know who's at fault, but it's not me. And the Jewish leadership responds with, his blood be on us and on our children. See, both Pilate and the Jewish leaders understand this idea of blood guilt. And there's a blood guilt here hanging on Abel having been killed. His blood is crying to me from the ground. It's not a literal statement like there's blood crying. It's saying that there's a, there's a murder that's taken place and it has to be resolved. This also is seen in Revelation chapter 6. With the fifth seal opening, I saw the altar, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The blood guilt resting upon a man or a culture because of the shedding of innocent blood one only has to wonder what the voice of hundreds of millions of babies who have been aborted around the world are crying out to God. Well, let's look then at the punishment of Cain, verse 11. Cain is directly cursed by precisely what he loves. He loves the ground, and he is cursed from the ground. You know, sin always pays back, and often in the same currency in which it was offered. Cain loved the ground. He sinned by spilling his brother's blood on the ground, and the curse now comes from the ground to Cain. Verse 12, when you... Work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's cry back to the Lord should be the cry of us all. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Any of us who know our sin should be able to sing that song with Cain. Paul says it, this way in Romans 7, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And so in verses 15 and 16, we find grace for Cain, a protection of his life. The Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. One of the things that fascinates me is to read online newspapers and the comments that are made 
on articles having to do with a person having committed a crime. Uh, it doesn't matter what the crime is, a person does a crime, and then there's comments from readers about the, about the story. And inevitably, there are several people in the comments section that say, he should be killed, they should tear him limb from limb, he should go to jail, and they should never let him back out, ever. You know, just on and on, this rage, like they are someone who's pure and innocent, able to just just determine exactly what the fit punishment should be, which should be very gross and very harsh. So Cain's worry is a real one. He goes out there into the world, what's going to happen? Somebody's going to have that attitude and just wipe him out. And so God's protection is by putting a mark on him. This mark is not a stigma. It's not a statement of evil or that you, you're marking him in a, as a bad guy. It's instead a safe conduct mark. To be able to have a mark in such a way that people look at that, oh, leave him alone. God put his mark on him. I'll leave him alone. You see, it's, a, it's an act of grace, of safety. And so it says that Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and settles in the land of Nod. Leaving the presence of the Lord and wandering is both something Cain had feared in verse 14, but it is apparently something that he wants to do. And this is, this is the dilemma of all unrepentant people. They, an unrepentant person typically has some longing for God. If you got to their heart of hearts, they'd say, oh, I wish I knew more of the things of the Lord, but they also do not want Him. And their do not want is greater than their longing for him. In any event, this is Cain's choice. He went away from the presence of the Lord. And he becomes an archetype in the scripture for what we call the world. Cain's sin actually leads to a cycle of revenge. Skip down to verse 23. We're introduced to a man named Lamech who has two wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, he's building on what Cain did in his rebellion, and he's saying, and I'll do even more. And so it goes until we reach where we are in 21st century civilization. In fact, Francis Schaeffer's note is chilling. Only technology limits modern man. Modern man does what he can do. And in this world of weapons of mass destruction, that is a frightening prospect. Notice, if you will, in chapters 3 and 4, the various reactions to sin, uh, first from Adam and Eve and then from Cain. In chapter 3, verse 8, Adam and Eve hid from God. They ran away from God and hid. Then in verses 11 and 12, they they blame, uh, it's the woman you gave me, Uh, it's the serpent that deceived me. There's a justification that happens in Chapter 3, verse 13, now with Cain, we have a rebellion and lying to God, and then the curse extends to even more murders on the part of Adam's progeny with Lamech being avenged 77 times. You know, our great question that we should ask is not, will God vindicate innocents who suffer? There's a lot of people, philosophers, that want to debate that. How can there be a God in the midst of such great innocent suffering? That's not the question. The question that we should ask is, how is it that God puts up with all of this nonsense for as long as he has? And the question that Jesus asked in Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. In verses 17 through 22, we have a description of culture. 
And culture is not a part of the curse, although culture is impacted by the curse and can be brought up by uh, resisting sin and can be brought down by embracing it. But let's look at some of these aspects of culture. In verse 17, you have urbanization. Cain knew his wife. She conceived, bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now, when we read this verse, typically what's going to happen is you're going to ask the question, Cain's wife, where did she come from? Right? Where'd Cain get his wife? We all like to ask the questions that God is not concerned with, and we like to avoid the point of the text that God wants us to get. So understand, the point of the text is about worship and how we can sin by our casualness, our cold-heartedness, by our deceit in our worship. That's the question God's concerned with. We're concerned with, well, where did Cain get his wife? (laughs) How silly of us. But I'll answer the question for you. Consider that Cain married his sister or his niece or some result of his siblings' marriages. You look in chapter 5, people lived hundreds and hundreds of years. The human genome at the beginning was perfect. It was a perfect human genome. No faults or flaws or mistakes in it. As part of Carol's uh, breast cancer uh, journey, she took a um, genetic testing. And we get back this huge long report that talks about all of her genes and all of the places where she has genes that are not, quote unquote, normal. There's replacements, there's spots where it's different. None of them indicate that there's any problems, but they said to Carol, hey, we'll put you in a database so that if we ever determine that those things are problems, we'll let you know about that. Here's the point. We are so far removed from Adam and Eve, our genome is, and every one of us, is completely fouled up, okay? It's, if you think that you can figure out how to live forever by, you know, we'll just have this thing or this thing or this diet or this exercise, you're whistling Dixie, friend, because we're just so far away removed from Adam and Eve and the perfection of the human genome that it's like, now, are there things we can do to make it worse? Oh, yeah, yeah, there are. But the reason, one of the reasons why you have such long lives in chapter 5 is this perfection of the genome. So Cain marrying his sister doesn't create anywhere near the kinds of difficulties or problems or challenges that it would today, okay? Doesn't create any problems. So, what we've got is urbanization, verse 17. Look at verse 20, you have livestock, agriculture, says, Ada bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. <clears throat> there are Bedouin even today who are journeying through the Middle East doing this exact same kind of farming that Ada created. Then in verse 21, you have another aspect of culture, music. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And then verse 22, metalworking. Zilla also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So what we have here is a description of the beginnings of culture, urbanization, livestock agriculture, music, and metalworking. Those are not part of the curse, but, of course, we can make them sinful. Now, the last thing that we want to talk about is chapter 5, death is part of the curse. Chapter 5 begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, You can mark the divisions of Genesis by this phrase, this is the book of the generations of And here we have the ones of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them and named them man when they were created. And so this beginning is beautiful. But look at the sadness. 
when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Here's the sadness. Every human being after Adam bears the likeness of Adam, which is the curse of sin. As in Adam, all die. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death came to all because all have sinned. Now, in my opinion, chapter 5 is not a direct genealogy. I think there's probably some gaps there if we look at that in comparison with other genealogies that happen in the Middle East, although I don't believe that there's such huge gaps to account for like millions of years. It's certainly thousands of years that we're talking about, but that's not the point of the genealogy anyway. Here's the point of the genealogy. Look at verse 5, the last three words. And he died. Verse 8, last three words. And he died. Verse 11, last three words. And he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. Verse 27, and he died. Verse 31, and he died. And the last verse in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings is, and so Joseph died, and they embalmed him, and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. A sobering reminder that the serpent lied when he said, you shall not surely die. You see, the point of this genealogy is to say, so begins the saga of death. And the question that should arise is, is there any hope? Is there any hope here? And there is, because there's one person who does not taste death, a, a, a guy named Enoch. Look at verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When we see Enoch being an exception to that, it reminds us of one who did not have to taste death at all, but who willingly did so for us. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says this of Jesus, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He took the punishment that we deserved. And when we read Genesis chapter 5 and we see, wow, this guy didn't die. Is there any hope? Yeah, I think there is. And as you get all the way through the scriptures, you are introduced to Jesus who did not have to die, but for the joy set before him endured the cross that we may have eternal life. Hebrews 11.5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Let me conclude with some final applications here. First, the problem of sin is really hard. There are three issues of sin that I want to talk about by way of application this morning. One's a hard one, one is a precious one, and one is a challenge. First, the hard one. God calls every human being to fight against sin. Every human being, He calls them to fight against sin. But we all know that we will not perfectly do so. That doesn't mean that we surrender in the fight. Hey, I can't win, so I guess I won't even try. No, that's not what it means. 
but it does mean that we know deep within that we need more than we ourselves can give. In fact, we know what Luther wrote in that hymn, A Mighty Fortress, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We lose. And even when we win against sin, we are so weird. (laughs) You know how weird we are? When we win over sin, we get proud of our victory. And then we start looking down our nose on people who have, who have lost in their fight with sin. Well, I'm not like that. Praise the Lord that I'm not like this publican here, right? That's how weird we are. That is a hard problem of sin. So the second issue about sin is a precious one. We have one in our Lord Jesus Christ who does perfectly obey when sin is crouching at the door. In the days when he walked this earth, he perfectly obeyed. When sin crouched at his door, he won. We have a captain of our salvation who wins over sin. And now the challenge. The victory that Jesus won at the cross means that we can win over sin as well. The person who has no relationship with Jesus cannot win. That's issue number one. The person related to Christ who has a relationship of trusting Him and relying on Him to forgive them of their sin has a captain who has won over sin. He's already won. That's issue number two. Now, being related to Christ means that he bore our sins in his body in order that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. We now have the power of saying no to sin crouching at the door. This is the challenge for the believer. Now, for some of you, Sin is crouching at your door in a profound way. It may be saying, you know, the world would be a better place if you just did away with yourself. Or you might just be better off if you divorce your spouse and head off into the world out there. Or It's just no fun being a Christian. I'm going to throw my lot in with some people that look like they're having a lot of fun. Doesn't matter where or how sin is crouching at your door. Please hear the voice of God to you this morning. You must master it. And you can do that by accepting the Father's love for you, by trusting in Christ's provision at the cross for you, and by calling on the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. You can say no to sin. Some of us are being haphazard in our worship of God. That's what Cain's sin was. You know, there's times where we sin, we don't even know how badly we are sinning. We give God what's left of our money, what's left of our time, what's left of our energy. Is it any wonder that churches are not thriving in our culture when her members are so lethargic? I encourage you, every Sunday that you gather, don't just say, oh, it's just another Sunday, but that you would pray, God, Make this a profound day of my worship and connection with you in company of my brothers and sisters in Christ. That you would engage in our adult Bible fellowships and say, I want that fellowship. I want to serve other people. I want to know them and I want them to know me. I'm going to join in a small group because I want the intimacy of fleshing out the problems of the Christian life and being able to come to some really great conclusions about how to live and do life with these dear ones who live and do life with me. It's when we say, well, I'll give God whatever's left over, and I just don't have margin for all that stuff. It's when we do that, 
My dear friends, I say with all the love I have in my heart, sin crouches at your door. Jesus' blood cries out also. Abel's blood cried out. But did you know that Jesus' blood cries out a better song than Abel's? Jesus' blood cries out grace. Hear the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, where the author is describing for us what real worship is like. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. One wonders if we could see them, if the, if the roof were open and we could see all of the angels that are witnessing our worship. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that's you and me, brothers and sisters, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And then, verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, listen, you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Lord, help us in our fight with sin, especially of our sin as we worship you. Forgive us for the ways in which we've been trite and rote and ritualistic and just a mere habit. It's just another Sunday. And help us to fully engage in knowing you and loving you and worshiping you in the company with our brothers and sisters. And we thank you, Jesus, that your blood speaks a better song than the song of Abel who cried out justice. Your blood cries out mercy. Amen.